Hello, welcome to Lamniforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Lamniforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today's guest is Sadhu Anna Dollingham of the band Semaphore. Sadhu is a multi-instrumentalist, singer, songwriter, and self-recorder. On previous Semaphore projects, Sadhu wrote, performed, and recorded all the material himself. But on their latest EP, Leave With The Season, released earlier this year, Sadhu brought in the rest of his live band, including previous Lamniform's radio guest Emmett Seglia, to contribute to the creative process. The result is a five-song collection that incorporates shoegaze, emo, and post-hardcore to address a period of loneliness and dissatisfaction in Sadhu's life. In this episode of Lamniforms Radio, we went track by track through the EP to spool out the band's inspirations and intentions. We also talked about Sadhu's early influences growing up in Bethesda, Maryland, and Semaphore's incredibly ambitious live cover of the Dillinger Escape Plan's Miss Machine in its entirety. I hope you enjoy our conversation. The thing that I find interesting about, like when I sent you my record, all of your points of reference for it were like not at all what I expected. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you were like mentioning like a lot more like metalcore stuff that like, uh-huh. I, I like that stuff now. Like what was that British band that you sent? Uh, Rolo Tomasi. Oh yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. Sick band. I had never heard of them before. Mm-hmm. And for me, like my music is so much ripping off like ISIS and Cult of Luna and sure. all these like older post-metal bands. Yeah. Maybe that it's funny how the generation thing only lasts like five years at this point because mm-hmm. I didn't grow up with any of those bands honestly I didn't even grow up with Converge uh, Converge is a really relatively new thing for me interesting you know wow okay when I was growing up I actually didn't even listen to heavy music <laughs> yeah no I, yeah. when uh, at that same Bushwick show that yeah. we were talking about you mentioned that you were like really into classical music and a lot of the yeah like the romantic Period yeah, stuff. romantic period. Uh, impressionistic classical music is mm-hmm. still what I'm trying to kind of draw most of my influences through. Totally. Mm-hmm. I, what, what were like the the main composers that jump out to you? Yeah, um, uh, Ravel and Debussy are mm-hmm. like the two for me that when I think about what my ultimate ideal for semaphore is, it's how do I get the sound of an orchestra through electric guitars, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's why, I mean... My my approach to guitar has also been, how do I do these like extended alternate tunings or something? How do both Jay and I get this full range of tones happening so that that's the sound? Right. Um, and for me, that it's kind of funny because I was into that stuff way before I discovered shoegaze music. And when I heard shoegaze, when I heard like My Bloody Valentine for the first time, immediately I thought, wow, this is this is like the natural extension of what Ravel's music might be. Mm-hmm. And my reference for like, you know, Meshuga and some of those bands is probably like Stravinsky because right. that is... Rite of Spring is totally yeah, a jet song. exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, there are some bands who try to do like Stravinsky as a metal thing. And yeah, I mean, that it's cool to look to those sort of musicians as influences. Mm-hmm. I mean... Jay introduces me to a lot of music in that realm because he's obsessed with like Ligeti and all these weird, those are more 20th century modern classical. Yeah. Uh, So did you, growing up, did you play classical music? Is that how you got introduced to that kind of stuff? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I grew up playing classical music. I played saxophone and clarinet growing Mm up. My main influences growing up were actually jazz because I was a jazz saxophone player and I I still am a jazz saxophone player. Uh You know, I don't, play out as much but that is definitely something i spent most of my life studying right you still like self-identify it's like part of your musical idea yeah when people say like what do you play i still say saxophone i don't play as many gigs on saxophone as i do on guitar these Mm -hmm. days but i've been playing saxophone since i was five years old so it's right very much part of my blood um and jazz harmony also is not 
overtly apparent in the music I write, but it is there. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that there's generally some crossover kind of with all the things that you're describing, like the you know impressionistic, classical stuff, jazz harmony, shoegaze. There's a lot of like uh, harmonic ambiguity and right. like layerings of extensions to create this kind of like larger scale effect yeah, in some way. Exactly. It's just how do you play as many notes in the key as possible? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All at the same time. That that definitely is in a simplification what I, it, it comes down to, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think leaving that ambiguity of tonality is an important way for me to express emotionally what's happening and so then when did you start playing more like conventional rock instruments and playing that kind of style of music? Yeah. I mean, I can't say I didn't grow up listening to that because that was 100% what I grew up listening to as well. Mm-hmm. You know, my first favorite band was Pink Floyd. And sure. to this day, I still probably consider Pink Floyd my favorite band. And that was just, you know, my parents loved that type of music. So mm-hmm. Pink Floyd, The Who, Yes, all bands I grew up listening to but my dad also loved Miles Davis and Joshua Redman and all these jazz musicians as well so when I was in like middle school I learned how to play the bass Mm -hmm. and so my first bands were just cover bands and we would just cover Rage Against the Machine and Red Hot Chili Peppers songs (laughs) which is perfect for a bass player right yeah so I had the best time in those bands and it was that was really my first foray into that. But I mean, I, yeah. So I, when I was growing up, I also loved Linkin Park and like mm-hmm. Blink-182, bands that you would just hear on the radio. Sure. DC had a really good radio station, rock radio station called DC 101 when mm-hmm. I was growing up. And I used to listen to that all the time. And, you know, nowadays it's the classic rock station you put it on it's like imagine dragons over and over again right yeah but funny how that shit is like played on classic rock despite it having like nothing in common actually you know definitely (laughs) definitely every now and then you put it on and you hear like cake or nirvana (laughs) and it feels it feels like okay yeah this is exactly what they used to play Mm -hmm. like 10 15 years ago but yeah they're the definition of what constitutes rock music at this point I guess it's just guitars. Even if they're buried under synthesizers, if there's yeah. guitars, it's rock music. My The rule of thumb I've always taken with classic rock is if your first album can legally drink, then you're a classic rock band. Got it. That's sort of like the way that I feel like it's... it's uh, Like now like Pearl Jam are a classic rock band. Oh yeah, 100%. Red Hot Chili Peppers, I feel like, were a classic rock band by the time we were getting into them in like the 2000s, you know? Californication, 1999. Yeah, exactly. That's a total like, (laughs) now we're a legacy band kind of record, you know? Yeah, that's true. I feel like at that point, a lot of bands, maybe this is because of the way that bands are being presented, but at that time, it felt like there were those albums that were band-defining moments. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just don't feel that happening as much these days. Maybe that's just because the industry is not focusing on rock music at all. So Right. Probably that as well as like the industry is just not focusing so much on like albums mm-hmm. as the thing. It's more totally. about like, I, I mean, I guess that's kind of not the case. Like obviously like for pop artists, it's still sort of organized around like drop a record, have a bunch of music videos and singles and tour around that. Yeah. But for rock bands, there's no like, money behind them right. to do that sort of thing except you know? for like tame impala i guess right and even they're like kind of transitioning to that sort mm-hmm. of like phil collins like right. adult contemporary pop zone at this point right you know and the pop thing is funny because I, I mean i read that you know the album thing is only important these days because streaming numbers are somehow depend on like you're just worried about streaming minutes at this point and so mm-hmm. if you can have 20 songs that you put out all at once you just your numbers will succeed as a result so right that's the drake strategy yeah the art of the album doesn't really matter anymore Mm -hmm. just let's shit out all these songs (laughs) and just put them somewhere so that actually segues pretty well into one of the questions i wanted to ask shitting out Uh, songs no No, more about like format because you know Mm -hmm. your newest release is an ep yeah it's like five songs Right. Um, did you know it was going to be, an, did you want to go in and do an EP or did it just end up that these songs kind of all came together around the same time? Yeah. So um, definitely the latter. They were 
the, the first three songs on that album, I wrote all of them in the same week. Mm. And they all came from a very similar emotional place, even though stylistically they're super different. And when I wrote them, we were kind of, Semaphore was going through a transition phase because, you know, we had slowly started to cement ourselves in the scene. And then our bass player said he had to move to, to the West Coast. So yeah, I feel like a common New York story. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So for that album, I wanted it to try to do like one last DIY push because everything up to that point had been us or actually me doing everything by myself, also playing all the instruments and everything. And so for this EP, I really just wanted us to almost utilize Chris's basement to its fullest, if anything, mm. Chris being the old bass player. And when he moved, when he said he was moving, I thought, all right, let's like, I have these three songs. We have this other song that we had written a couple months ago and Emmett had a song that he had been working on for some time. And the thought was, okay, let's just do something. We don't have enough material for a full length at this point, And there's no reason to rush a full length because we want it to still be songs that we all emotionally connect to. So sure. we went to Chris's basement and recorded the whole thing in a couple of weeks or maybe even like one week. And then that was the process for that EP. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a, a bit more collaborative then than the, the past releases? Definitely, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the previous releases, 100% were me. Um, this release, you know, as I said, Emmett wrote one song. Uh, Which song was that, if you don't mind? That was Didn't You Dream, the last song. The gotcha, album. okay. Yeah, and he also even, I wrote all the lyrics and the vocal melodies, but we kind of worked through that together. Mm-hmm. Leave with the season, the song was something that Jay kind of started in one of the practices. And we had actually previously done that for a 24 hour song challenge for uh, Speaking to My Good Eye. Okay. Yeah, they had this, they said, tr- just spend 24 hours trying to write and record a full song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the song that came out of it. So we just wanted to get a better version of that also out there. And then the first three songs was kind of a funny process for myself because I wrote all three of those songs in that first week and they all, I, I, you know, I put in as much as I could emotionally into those songs and then Emmett listened to them and he was like, yeah, these are cool. <laughs> but but it, it wasn't as convincing as a story. So the two of us locked ourselves into his practice room for like 48 hours mm-hmm. and we just worked on refining that stuff, changing parts here and there. And for me, that was a little bit nerve wracking because I feel like, you know, presenting your songs to someone else, to the public is one thing, but especially when you have bandmates that you want them to enable you a bit, but also you want them to get the best out of you. It took me a little bit of time to, for myself to just understand the place that the two of us have towards these songs, you know, like how both of us can connect to it and as a result honestly like the stuff that Emmett had to say ended up 100% being the best things for the songs themselves what kind of stuff did he bring to the table for those tunes yeah so I mean for unreal for all three of those first songs he had a lot to do with editing parts as far as the order of parts and the length of different parts okay um because I had a very specific what Something that the two of us always kind of disagree with, which is kind of funny, but always ends up bringing stuff to the table, is that what even is the chorus of the song? Mm. Which Interesting. is okay. yeah, which is such a funny thing to disagree with because you know there is an unreliable. I had uh, written a chorus and then I'd written a bridge, and he was it's like, why don't we just make that bridge the chorus because that's clearly the best part of the song. <laughs> so. For me to like, you know, there's emotional weight in a chorus. So for me to just listen to him and trust his instinct, I think 100% proved to be the better thing for that song. Mm-hmm. And then even for Unreliable itself, this is the funniest part. He said, this just needs an ending. It just needs like a bridge and an outro. Right. Um, and literally he said that. And five seconds later, I, I just played something. And that's what the outro is, <laughs> <laughs> which I think for a lot of people... At least for myself, that's like almost my favorite part of the whole EP at this point. Just those chords that modulate in different keys and it's like in six measures instead of eight measures. Yeah, I, I made a note about that. Like the song like really goes to a totally different place at the yeah. very end, like harmonically especially. Yeah, and 
again, that's just something that he said, it needs something. And I went, okay. And I just played it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the first thing that came out of the chord shape that I was trying to play. Yeah. Why did you decide to put that song first on the EP? I just think it kind of displays the full range of our sound. You know, mm-hmm. I still have that mild pop punk influence, um, which it's not really a pop punk chorus, but it can. We we share bills with bands because of that song, I yes. think. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then the outro is where it's this, it's shoegaze, it's loud, but it's really jazz harmony underneath mm-hmm. the whole thing. And that is, to me, what it's like an idealized version of Semaphore. Right. Yeah. So I think it just displayed the best of all of us from the get-go and it's kind of just a driving song as well. Yeah. It, it strikes me as kind of like the most like conventionally poppy song yeah. on the record in a totally. lot of ways. Like someone who is unfamiliar with the project and hear that and be like, Oh, I know like roughly what kind of band this is pretty exactly. immediately. Exactly. And then the second song just immediately takes a right turn from <laughs> yes, there. It changes really <laughs> drastically. Yeah. Uh, but that's my favorite ch- chunk of the EP is the like convergence into pie. Oh, awesome. Like, yeah. Thinking of those as kind of like one track because they go really smoothly. One sure. to The other. Sure. Obviously very different moods. Yeah. But like that, that little duo is the sweet spot for me. Cool. Yeah. Like, Convergence, I it's got that one sort of like post-chorus bridge part that reminds mm-hmm. me a lot of like like classic Deftones sure. kind of stuff. Yeah, and yeah there's yeah. a lot of obviously it's like the heaviest of the mm-hmm. songs, so that kind of appeals to me being more yeah, of a right. heavy music guy. It just like a really cool tune. There's one thing at the end that I really want to to ask you about where the the song kind of goes off the grid. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and. At first, I was like, oh, this is just some like weird improv shit that they did at the end. But then mm. I was listening to it last night. I was like, oh, no, this is written, isn't it? Like <laughs> the way that like the guitars are playing off of each other and like the sort of like way it's stretching the measure is how much of that is organized and how much of that is like pure chaos. So, yeah, that end part is one of those things that I I had written a demo for this in Logic mm-hmm. and I had just recorded guitars by itself and I literally tapped in the drum part to go kind of with that moment. Mm -hmm. But then when Emmett recorded, he didn't listen to any of that. So So, yeah, it ultimately ended up being that Emmett chose how the end should be. And, you know, I think he has great sensibility for when that hard boundary between too much and the sweet spot of being okay this is now a moment you know Mm -hmm. you can definitely overstay your welcome with something like that you know absolutely we didn't want the song to just become like that thing so he he played that part and then when when we were recording it was literally like okay where where are the transients coming where are the transients (laughs) coming (laughs) um but when we do it live i'm leading the band through those basically you know Mm-hmm. That's the moment where we all like have to turn to each other, which is kind of a cool moment live. Yeah. So it's not exactly written though. We, gotcha. Every time we just kind of do however many feels right. Yeah. And usually again, it's just like we, we try to not get carried away in the moment, but I think that all of us have a pretty good sensibility about that. Right. Point. Yeah. It's, it's clear that you guys have like a, a pretty s- strong chemistry to be able to like trust each other to land up in the same places at a certain point. You know? Yeah. That's what I was struck with, like seeing you guys do that one live. Mm-hmm. And that might be what sort of differentiates you from the bands that unreliable will get you into the bill on. Sure. You know, like they're sure. not really going there at the end of their songs that way. It's yeah. like a very cool, like musicians will recognize like, Oh shit. Like these guys are, legitimate <laughs> there's something right. really really cool going on here right a few other things i wanted to to talk about with this particular song i was kind mm-hmm. of really interested in the lyrics in it you said that like these first three songs all kind of came out in the same place in terms of period of time and like emotional headspace yeah uh what was going on that like led to you writing these songs yeah i mean the the biggest thing is that i feel like it was like just about the time of the year when the sun starts setting a little bit earlier than it should be mm-hmm. um, right around this time. Kinda. Yeah, exactly. This time, two, three years ago, two years ago. And I was just feeling pretty isolated, mm-hmm. you know, just, I had a good group of friends, but we just didn't see each other very often. I wasn't dating anyone at the time. Um, 
really the only people I saw were semaphore band members. And I just got on like a date and it went well. And then, you know, classic story, she like was not interested. So it was just one of these moments kind of culminating, okay, like what am I doing in the city? This band is not really going anywhere. Whatever I'm trying to do is not lining up. But the lyrics are all about trying to just deal with that, deal with isolation, deal with loneliness, trying to figure out how do you remain active and engaged with the world when it's not giving you much back in return as well. I was struck in particular, it seems like at least like my take on it was like, it's sort of like a response to like positive thinking mm -hmm. culture in some way. Totally. The idea that someone who doesn't understand the depths of like, loneliness or pain that you're going through is going to throw a lot of like kind of condescending shit at you to like right. tell you how to get out of that sort of rut. Uh, and this song just strikes me as a f kind of a freak out against that kind of pressure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's pretty nihilistic at its core. The mm -hmm. chorus lyrics are just exactly what you said. You know, w people think positive thinking can fix everything. I often struggle with this mind over matter sort of dichotomy can you really think yourself into feeling better or do you actually have to undergo some sort of physical change if it's yourself or your surroundings or something in mm -hmm. order to actually make some sort of change happen do you feel like writing music and writing lyrics about that sort of thing is a way of affecting that kind of physical change by like processing it physically by playing music or putting it into some other sort of container yeah i mean i think that's what i'm not sure about honestly mm. even to this day music does a lot of good for me personally uh, you know i love playing music i feel good when i play music but it's really the times in between the music you know in between when the music stops when like <laughs> you know what what do you do with that quiet mm. what, what are you supposed to do with processing if you're not sure what the right answer is I'm not 100% sure. I think that's, yeah. that's that's the thing. Another interesting track lyrically is the next one, Pi, because it's yeah. super stripped down lyrically, only yeah. a few lines. Um, and I always find that like to be a fascinating choice. Like, Did you know that you wanted to keep it just as basically one stanza the whole time? So that was another thing that originally, I thought those lyrics were like a little too on the nose, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And I had buried them in the mix. I'd put like a lot of reverb on them and they, you just like, it was, it almost sounded like a synthesizer at that point, just kind of adding to this vibe that mm -hmm. the rest of the song is in. And then Emmett was like, Hey, does the song have lyrics? Like, is, are you going to write a vocal melody? And I, I, I like kind of took off all the plugins. And I was like, well, this is like what the part <laughs> is. And he was the one who said, yeah, you should just do that for the vocal thing. Like don't bury it. Just like actually sing it out loud. So, mm. That was something that went against my better judgment. You know, sometimes the music is that we write is funny because we like to be on the nose about it, but that's not who I am necessarily as a person. Sure. I'm a little, not subtle, but I, I, it's just not my gut instinct to be in your face, to be loud, except when we play music. Right. So for him to say that, I think was, it, it is for me also another favorite part of the album those lyrics how they line up at the end three different vocal parts going on but all saying the same line over and over and over right again. uh this is also the only song on the record that has a music video is that right uh unreliable has a music oh, video oh shit well. my bad i no. uh, haven't seen that one okay yeah that that's a <laughs> yeah the both of them were directed by the same dude uh george ivanoff mm -hmm. good friend he's amazing at what he does thank you for working for no budget george <laughs> but yeah that, the idea for both those music videos were ideas I had. Once once Pi became the song that it was, I thought it was, okay, how do we get this to, how do we just, just show this visually? And especially with the different moods in that song, you know, there's definitely an A and a B section of the song. That I love that music video. The post-it notes were a lot of fun to mm -hmm. deal with. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool, simple concept, yeah. which I think is like the key, especially for independent bands if they're doing music videos, mm -hmm. is like, if you don't have a big budget, you just have to have like a really good idea. Yeah. And so like a person covered in post-it notes, mm -hmm. is that's a really good idea. Like yeah. it's just like a striking image immediately. And I, I like your point about the way that the music changes, but the lyrics kind of don't. 
Mm-hmm. which like forces you to hear the lyric in a different way. The context of the lyric changes in a really cool way. Was that something that you, you did by design? Kind of. I, um, that's something that I'm super influenced by from like musicians like um, Minus the Bear, mm-hmm. where they take a vocal line or a vocal melody and they just keep repeating the melody, but the chords underneath it change. That's one of my favorite things to do in music, like static melodies, but you know, changing harmonies. Um, and so that's really what happens in Pi as well. There's this kind of bass part in the beginning. The bass is like leading the harmonies, the whole song. So there's that bass part, the beginning, which I tried to make like a Tycho song or something, and then lays down just like low as he can get on the bass strings. And just at the end, yeah, you, you're you forced to hear in a different way because of the harmonic value, I think, as well as it's just a bit more shouty. You mentioned that bass was like your primary mm-hmm. rock band instrument for a while. Do you still view that as kind of your home musically? When like I, I when I talk to multi instrumentalists, I'm always curious like what instrument they think in. Sure, you know, it's if I'm trying to write just a rock song, then 100 mm-hmm. percent it's bass. Um, if a song is partially written. On guitar, it's always easier for me to finish it on bass as well. Interesting. Guitar for me is, is such a weird thing because I've only been playing guitar for like five years at this point, you know. And my approach to guitar, I I, I honestly, I know this is not going to sound like this, but like, I just don't really know the ins and outs of guitar at this point. Um, you know, when I do it in semaphore, I have a very specific approach. I do alternate tunings for every song basically and just like different tunes for every single song. And I know what chord shapes feel good and I know how to recognize patterns in a specific tuning. And so when we play songs, it's like, let's move this shape all over the place. It's almost like you're changing the instrument to like suit your understanding of the song. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So for me to straight up write a song. Yeah. It's, I I feel like bass is still the one that if I just want to sit down write something that like a rock song from front to back it's pretty straightforward on bass mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so you, you play you said you play saxophone play bass mm-hmm. uh you want to list off because i know you, you've got sure. some other stuff on your <laughs> belt too yeah uh so i mean i grew up playing saxophone clarinet and flute uh-huh and then i play bass guitar I grew up playing piano as well, I guess, and drums. Do you feel That's it. <laughs> anything else that you like want to learn how to play? Not really. I, I'd love to learn some Indian instruments, if anything, like tabla mm-hmm. or a sitar, but nothing that I fuck around a lot with synthesizers and drum machines these days. And that yeah. to, in its own is a thousand instruments. Right. So that's I'm more interested in getting involved or understanding the technology a little bit better, honestly, rather than learning new things at this point. But what's drawing you to that kind of stuff? I just, these days, most of the music I listen to is electronic music and sound design, sound production, things that I've always been interested in and things that I I do know a fair bit about at this point, but I'm just always interested in the next steps. How do I become a better producer? How do I learn how to mix better? things like that. Yeah. So was this a self self-recorded, you said you recorded it all in mm-hmm. the basement. Did you also mix and master it yourselves or? So, um, Emmett mixed this one, mm-hmm. which was the, all the other ones I've mixed. And so this is the first time he mixed it. Um, and I was pretty happy to let that role go as well. Emmett went to school for music production basically. So I trusted him a bit more than myself to get that album to its full potential from like the DIY recordings we had. And then mastering, I've been we've been working with Alan Douches for a while. Uh-huh. Do you know Alan Douches? Yeah, I don't yeah. know I don't know him personally. Yeah. But, you know, he, like you can see that there's a giant yeah. No Heroes poster behind me. Exactly. So I'm aware. So yes. You know, when when I first did like All Too Robot, for example, and I guess with Semaphore's music in general, we really tried to not have this one genre thing happening. Mm-hmm. And, and we really love the loud, soft aspects of the music as well. And a band that always stuck out to us was the Dillinger Escape Plan. Which so, we'll get to in detail soon. <laughs> yeah. So for me, the first thing I wanted to do was get Alan to master the album because mm-hmm. Alan masters all of Dillinger's albums. So that was just cool to also 
get that professionally done. And he's, he's a genius. He's super nice, super easy to work with, even though we were like, you know, we're still like a nobody band, but he was called me on the phone when I submitted the thing. He's like, this sounds great. Like, just like, what's your budget, blah, blah, blah. And so he was just super easy to work with. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 A few little production notes that I really liked. I Mm -hmm. love the end of unreliable, the vocal effect. Uh, yeah. really cool, subtle choice. Took me a while to even notice it, but it's mm-hmm. got that sort of like, like tremolo effect. Yeah. On it's it. tremolo. And it's like panning as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's an Emmett trick. Uh-huh. <laughs> I had that vocal. I had that like three part vocal thing happening at the end. And he thought like, okay, why don't we just like save this for the end and, and like just have it exposed again, something that would not have been my first instinct because that's again, not who I necessarily am, <laughs> even though the music is a little like lends itself to that place. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was a good choice by him. And also the, uh, the sort of distortion effect on the chorus of, uh, mm-hmm. of convergence. Uh, yeah. That's a, a, a pretty distinct sound. That was too. me. Yeah. yeah. I, I wanted that to just be boisterous, <laughs> like mm-hmm. just in your face. You can't avoid what that is. So you mentioned that the, the next two are more collaborative. Yeah. Uh, so leave with the season, the title track. Uh, I'm always curious about why people choose certain tracks to be the title track. Like mm-hmm. puts a lot of like kind of puts the spotlight on that song on any given release. So Yeah. I mean, you know, unreliable while that might be the most all encompassing track on the album. I, I think leave with the season pretty much speaks to the core of what that album is, which is this is a post hardcore album. Yeah. You know, leave with the season. I think also is probably just a catchier EP name, if anything. Sure. I I think that song does a good job of just capturing all the emotions, mm-hmm. and that phrase is a good, good phrase as well. And you mentioned that this was something that was written over the span of, or at least the original version was mm-hmm. a twenty-four hour song. Yeah. Did anything change from that early twenty-four hour version compared to the the recorded version? No. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that I was super happy with that process, and even though it, you know that was almost two years ago at this point when we wrote that song, it was just really cool to be able to do that. Honestly, mm-hmm. we just got in the room. We said we have twenty-four hours, and we actually did it in twenty-four hours. Yeah, no, nothing has changed except that we just actually spend time properly recording it. And Jay, Jay does the solo on that song. Jay is an amazing improviser, so mm-hmm. that solo is fully improvised. I have no idea where that came from. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It seems like this kind of like classic rock moment shows yeah. up in the middle of the song, and then it goes back to being a post-hardcore song. Yeah, you know, I still love guitar solos and songs. I, yeah. I, I don't. Like, I, I wish more bands would still do that. I still, like, I, I heard some random band yesterday at Much More's, and they sounded like Weezer, and then in the middle, the dude just played, like, a killing solo on, and it was, it just made everything work, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think every moment needs to be filled with vibes and lyrics. I think a guitar solo can 100% do that. It is almost like a throwback move at this point. Yeah. But there's no reason why it can't work. Like a really good guitar solo is really exciting. Totally. Yeah. I like that your point about uh, the note that I I wrote for myself is this track kind of feels like the rug that ties the room together. Mm -hmm. If Unreliable sort of announces what sort of band it is, this like cements what kind of band it is. Like you're right. It's totally like post hardcore at its like at its heart but you also said that you wanted to kind of stay away from being like one genre specifically so how how do you balance that those two those two instincts yeah i think that we get put in that box a lot because you know the the music sounds like that i think that most people it's it's that's the song that most people will very clearly say okay post hardcore band and i don't think there's anything wrong with falling into what your instincts are telling you. If your instincts are telling you, just make this a post-hardcore song, by all means, let's do it. I think that the multi-genre thing is just something that naturally we write songs are one song sounds like this thing, one song sounds like something else. Mm-hmm. You know, if one, if Leave With The Season is like post-hardcore distilled, for us doesn't necessarily represent who we are as a band, but we're also pretty aware of what other people think of us as a band. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and so then the last track on the record. Uh, well, I will say oh, that yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, the, my main influence for the 
for most of Leave with the Seasons bridge, though, was Chelsea Wolf. So ah. I was just trying to write what I would imagine a Chelsea Wolf like loud part on his spun would sound like. You mm-hmm. know, I guess she she's that album is kind of like a post hardcore album, but that was my influence <laughs> for that song. Yeah, kind of yeah, I think it's it's cool that you're bringing post hardcore is like kind of the lens that all of this is like you could read it through. Yeah. But if you actually like break down the in- individual components, of what's going on in the music, it's right. not like you're just trying to write an at the drive-in record. Yeah. You know, hundred percent. It's more just like, that's kind of the band's natural sensibilities mm-hmm. take you there. Mm-hmm. How did you get into like hardcore and post hardcore music? Like when, when did that happen for you? So when I was growing up, I guess I, as I mentioned, Blink-182 was a big band for me. Mm-hmm. And when they they broke up in like 2003 or something for the first time, and their bass player had a podcast that I used to listen to all the time, hmm. like one of, in the early, early days of podcasting. Wow, yeah. True uh, trendsetter right there. Right. He had this <laughs> podcast called Hi, My Name is Mark, and he used to play a ton of cool bands on that podcast. And early days of the internet as well, you know, you're talking about Sputnik. Like I would go on pure volume and just find all these bands, even like MySpace band right. pages back in the totally, day. Yeah. Um, so my first forays were a bunch of like emo, what what people called emo, but really was post-hardcore bands like Alexis on Fire, Boys Night Out, mm-hmm. um, Monine, Silverstein. Oh yeah. I know. Like, I'm familiar with all these. Yeah. And then I, I, there was this show. Did you ever watch MTV2 growing up? Yeah, I actually didn't have cable growing okay. up, but I would go okay. to over to friends' houses and see it every once in a while. So sure. every Saturday on MTV2, they had a uh, music video countdown show called Rock Countdown. Mm-hmm. And I think it was 20 or 10 music videos, but it was always post-hardcore. And I don't know why. I don't know <laughs> what happened in the world that made like that the thing, but that opened a lot of doors. Fall Out Boy, Hawthorne Heights, mm-hmm. like a lot of those bands that were now kind of legacy bands and like the emo you know what people call emo world so those that opened a lot of doors for me and then for some reason i took a hard right turn and like i mentioned i didn't listen to many heavy bands but three bands i really liked and i only liked bands i didn't like scenes as well so Mm -hmm. the three bands in heavy music that i just ended up liking were protest the hero between the Buried and Me and the Dillinger Escape Plan. Right. I didn't listen to any heavy music outside of those bands. Like I, I didn't really like metalcore music. Mm-hmm. I just really liked those three bands. And it took some time after that. I think I was in college. I was studying abroad in London, and I just went on like, I'm gonna just listen to every band out there. Um, and in the same week, I discovered, as I'm super late to the game, I discovered My Bloody Valentine and Deftones in the same week, and I was like, okay. This makes sense to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is this is it. <laughs> I've arrived, and it was literally within the same like one two week span of discovering both those bands. So yeah, no, this is like it all rings really true to me. Like I feel like how how old are you? I'm 26. Okay, I'm yeah. 29. Yeah. So roughly same same era. Definitely a lot of the same bands. Like Protest the Hero makes a ton of sense because they're they sort of take like the post hardcore thing and then just like crank up the yeah. like the speed. And yeah, like, right. You know, I they, it's to me it almost feels like playing Dream Theater songs as if they were skate punk songs or something like 100%. that. <laughs> yeah. But then how how did you how did you run across Dillinger? Was that through like the same like music video kind of thing or Yeah, okay. So specifically Dillinger was because they're they played come to daddy mm-hmm. uh in whatever that music festival is i guess reading and leeds like the classic concert where greg threw his shit into the crowd right yeah so there's a video of them playing come to daddy and uh the first song on calculating infinity whatever so <laughs> so they, they played come to daddy and i just remember watching it and hating it like mm-hmm. i thought they were the worst band ever at one point ben is jumping around and he literally falls backwards onto the ground and i used to show that video to friends because i i, I would show them like you know back in youtube party days where i'd show them this band and i was like look how shitty this band is uh-huh. that was my first exposure to the dillinger <laughs> escape plan and then i think it was about ireworks i heard black bubblegum for the first time honestly yeah and it it just like harmonically the verses something weird was happening uh and it's that bridge is like, you know, definitely not as hardcore as they do get, but it just, it felt very different to me. Um, and so I just started listening to them after that. 
non-ironically. <laughs> right. I do want to talk more about Dillinger soon, but let's finish off the EP sure. first. Yeah. Um, so Didn't You Dream? Mm-hmm. Uh, you said that this was one that Emmett brought in to the, the band? Yeah, yeah. Emmett has been in a ton of bands. So yeah. he, he has, he had and has a, just like a store of songs. And, you know, he basically has like 10 or so songs that could be semaphore songs. So we went through the songs together and we thought, okay, let's, let's end the album off with one, one of these songs. And that song, yeah, was, I forgot what the original title was, but that's what Didn't You Dream came from. And for that song, so theme of the podcast is I'm late to the game on everything because I like really didn't listen to the band Thursday at all, but I know that that's one of Emmett's biggest influences. So uh, I had tickets to see them play at Northside Festival like whenever two years ago. And I spent two weeks only listening to Thursday. And then I went to the concert and I saw Thursday play. And on the bus ride home, I wrote all the vocal lines and, and the melodies and the lyrics to the song. And vast majority of those are pretty much like what it ended up being as well. Gotcha. Yeah. So so that that's... Really, again, another song that very heavily cemented in the post-hardcore camp. What was the inspiration for the lyrics for that one? What were you writing about on the bus? So it's another case where I guess not as much about the loneliness, isolation aspect of it, more so about, you know, I have, I think that all of us have people in our lives that get very comfortable with where they are. And as a result, it feels like they never try to just gain some sort of enlightenment about the world they never try to progress and evolve past where they're comfortable with and so for me that's something that i always try to aspire you know to be is just a better version of myself which the song kind of speaks about how that is almost as futile as a as a practice as just kind of submitting yourself to the fact that there are powers outside of your control that you can't do anything about. And so sure. how do you try to overcome these things when you really can't ultimately? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's another thing that lends itself well to the musician mindset because I feel like it's really easy to get stuck in a rut, mm-hmm. but it's also really easy to, or not really easy, but it, there's a clear path to like how to improve. You know, you can improve on right. your instruments. You can improve as a songwriter. You can improve as a self producer and recorder. Right. But then applying that to, you know, how to live your life better is like yeah. a totally different story, you know? Yeah. And even then, you know, you can, you can learn how to do all these things better, but it might still not amount to anything. You mm-hmm. know, you might just end up being that band that plays in Brooklyn and, you know, you never really get to some, bigger level of success it's sort of like uh, process versus results thinking yeah. you know 100 percent. i remember when i was like 24 or so i got really into that angel olsen record burn your fire mm-hmm. for no witness mm-hmm. and like that lyric i just like obsessed over it because it's like oh that's how you're supposed to live you know yeah like the idea of like you've just got to like do it regardless if anyone sees you doing it yeah you know, you've got to find satisfaction in like the doing itself you know yeah, no, definitely. I think <laughs> that's, yeah, you, ultimately that is what you have to do in order to survive in this world. Because mm-hmm. if you're not, if you can't even just make yourself happy, you never will be happy. I think that that is something that I would like to embrace more for myself, but it's, it's not always the easiest thing to, it's not always, I mean, again, positive thinking is not always the easiest right. way to look at it. You know, you can trick yourself into thinking that this is going to Everything will work out because you think it will work out, but no one's going to give you anything at the end of the day. You Mm -hmm. just have to keep trying to get better and better. Were there any like specific things that were, were you responding like to specific people in your life or or certain behaviors that you were seeing outside of your social circle that led you to to write about that subject for the, the last song? I mean... It's kind of directed at some of my friends, to be honest. No one in particular, but just this mentality like, okay, I'm happy. But then you see, okay, you actually hate your job. You kind of really don't like the way you're living your life. 
what are you happy about? Is mm-hmm. it comfort for me is a double-edged sword because comfort's what we're all aiming for, but comfort can really keep you from attaining some sort of higher purpose or evolve. So now that this album is, or this EP rather is behind you, mm-hmm. I, you know, I feel like you actually are still pretty active in the D. I know you, yeah, the beginning, yeah, totally. So you had some like fears about how active you were going to be going forward after this like lineup change, but seems like you're playing a lot of shows you're you're staying busy so yeah we definitely have been staying busy i mean we played at uh bled fest earlier this year Mm -hmm. which was super cool because i met the person who put together the festival before we played and he came up to me and he was like you know after we booked the festival we only had three slots for other bands and we just thought you guys were doing something cool and unique and that felt really cool to hear anyone say that, mm-hmm. let alone like the organizer of the festival. And of course, like one of the headliners was Hawthorne Heights, which felt like a really full circle for right, me. Right? Yeah, yeah. That was super cool. Uh, we played at Govball After Party with the band Hundredth, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been we've been trying to remain uh, just playing shows as much as possible. You know, we also, as you know, have like a ton of sister projects and other bands. So between all of it, you know, the four of us have been playing a ton of music over the past couple of months. Mm -hmm. There hasn't been as many semaphore shows in the city, but I think that's also been a conscious thing that when, when I started the band, I thought, okay, let's play once a month. Let's just get our name out there so that when people see the name semaphore, it's at least something that they have seen before. But I don't think we need to do that anymore. We don't need to just hop on any bill. Like, I think we can curate ourselves a little bit better. Sure. Um, you know, you don't want to burn out your hometown crowd. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we, we haven't played in Brooklyn in a couple of months, but 2020, I think we'll be doing a lot more shows around here. One of the specific shows now we've planted the seeds along yeah, the way, but right. now we got to talk about yeah. it. So a year ago for Halloween. Yeah semaphore like the semaphore big band because you brought yeah. in a bunch of the members of some of those other uh sister, sister projects, projects right. to cover dillinger escape plans miss miss machine yeah from start to finish yeah. what the fuck yeah <laughs> <laughs> like this is a crazy idea to mm-hmm. me like when i was living in chicago there was this band uh sidewalk chalk okay they were like a like live instrumentation hip-hop kind right. of band and they did a similar thing where they covered Jay Dilla's Donuts. Oh, that sounds so cool. Like, start to finish. Amazing. And to me, it's like, one, it's nuts. That sounds harder, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) They both, to me, seem equally insane. Because it's like, these are, like, not even the audacity to, like, take it on, Mm. but the actual workload to take it on just is staggering to me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it was a process, 100%. And... I think we just, I don't know what came over us. I don't know really why we decided to do it. I think we just, we all love the Dillinger Escape Plan. We wanted to respect their legacy in some way. And for us, that was the best way, mm-hmm. you know. So why why Miss Machine? It's, it's the album that all of us kind of agreed would probably be the best representation of their work. Mm-hmm. And also... All of us have different favorite Dillinger albums, but that's one that's very high on the list for all of us. Uh-huh. Is your favorite different? Yeah, my favorite is probably One of Us is the Killer. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And Jay's is also One of Us is the Killer. <laughs> but but we all love Miss Machine. Right. You know, there's no question about it. I think front to front to back, at this point, I think it is my favorite album after learning it. I think every song is amazing. You can tell that they were really reaching their peak with that lineup at that point. It, yeah, I, I think it was the perfect album for us to learn. And also, to be honest, be, because after that album as well, they get a little bit more into electronics, like manipulation and stuff like that. And we thought, okay, we don't really want to have a computer on stage. Like, we don't want to, we want to nail it. Like, we want to get down exactly as it sounds on the album. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to have to sacrifice things because we we missed that like the synths on this song or like the fact that there's like a drum machine on like black bubblegum for example right. if, if we wanted to do ireworks i mean ireworks i feel like would be pretty much like like some of the more like idm sounding stuff on that record yeah. would be really really hard to pull off live yeah i don't i mean you know we talked to ben about the process mm-hmm. uh and even he said for miss machine they never played 
the album as it sounded live. Yeah. Because in the studio, there would be moments where uh, I think they worked with Steve Evitz on that album. And Steve would say, this has to have a lead part. And Ben would just play something random. And then he had no idea what he played. So, <laughs> so now I probably know those parts better than he does. <laughs> so what did you... I find, like, I went through a phase in my life where I learned every Iron Maiden song on drums. Sure. And I feel like I came out of it with a completely different understanding of yeah, like, how yeah. that band works. So how has your perspective on the record changed from listening to it and being a fan of it versus like transcribing it and internalizing it and playing it live. Okay. To sum it up in like one very overt way, like to me, the partnership between Ben Wyman and Chris Penny became so obvious to us Mm. as we started learning how to play the music and you can just tell, okay, these are the Chris parts and these are the Ben parts of the (laughs) album. As soon as it becomes like a punk thing that like, you know, everyone is just doing the same, you know, to use an adjective like boneheaded, like dun, 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 like right. That's the Ben part, and then Chris is like, okay, there's so much synchronicity happening. There's so many subtle things happening, like the drums clearly are like leading what's happening there. Um, those are the Chris parts, and it's just the marriage of those two mentalities because they're two different sides of the same coin. That is why that band sounds like what they sound like, mm-hmm. and why they're able to have a range of fans i think yeah this just to like nerd out on this record yeah yeah. like it it to me it it almost feels like the the band's like second debut album in a way yeah totally i feel like calculating infinity is kind of like the last album of the eps and demos Mm -hmm. band and Mm -hmm. then this this album is like the first because obviously like greg it's the first one greg sings right right but it's also the first one they've got like a lot more of the sort of like electronic Mm -hmm. elements and like the poppier elements as well totally yeah i mean for for me whenever people tell me their favorite album is calculating they're not I mean, I don't want to sound like an elitist. I'm going to sound like an elitist. They're not really Dillinger fans. They, they're they fans of Calculating Infinity. Yeah. And that's cool. Like, they like the early stuff. They like they probably prefer what Converge sounds like to current Dillinger. That All that's awesome. But mm-hmm. Dillinger, to me, was always Miss Machine onwards, yeah. honestly. Even though, as I mentioned, like, when I, my first exposure to them was them playing... <laughs> come to daddy which isn't like even any of those <laughs> songs right yeah um, i view that ep as kind of its own separate like, yeah almost more of a mike Patton project than anything yeah. else My, anything mike Patton's on make, becomes a mike Patton project right. yeah yeah so i completely agree i think that it's it's a very very cool album to show the rest of their trajectory and so it's good that you're bringing up their live you know, reputation Mm -hmm. because not only it's not just that you were like transcribing and learning how to play these songs, but Mm -hmm. you actually had to perform them live. Yeah. Did you feel any (laughs) kind of pressure to live up to the Dillinger escape plan, like live experience? Uh, yeah. I mean, we knew we'd get flack from fans if we didn't do something extra, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I don't know. I I don't think any of us, I think all of us naturally, when we play music, we get into it and we, have whatever we we just have stage presence you know but i just wasn't trying to think about it because as soon as you think about it it becomes contrived and they never were contrived so i i I didn't try to think about it at all you know when i when i play i I don't think about stage presence i don't think all right put your foot on the on the monitor at this moment (laughs) because and then put your arm in the air like that's the exact kind of shit that Ben w- was like roasting disturbed for back exactly. in the day. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. That's what I was referencing as yeah. well. <laughs> um, no, I mean, like, I, I went to the first performance of the yeah, Miss Machine right, show. Right. I thought that was a fucking great show. Mm-hmm. Like, there's something specifically cool about you guys doing it, like, in New York and it being like a tri state area band. And totally. You know, like, being in a room with a bunch of people that clearly knew all the songs really, really well. Yeah. And it was just a really, really cool energy. But you did it a second time. Mm hmm. Uh, at St. Vitus. What were the differences between those two performances? Did you learn anything from the first time around that you applied to the second one? So the main thing that, the reason why we wanted to do it a second time was just, first time was cool, but you know we learned it. Might as well do it a second time. Give it one, one year of rest and do it a second time. And just make sure we like really nail it this time. Mm-hmm. So the biggest difference, which is going to sound wild, we only 
had a full band practice once before the original time. <laughs> I, I can't even respond to that. That's ridiculous. So, <laughs> so we, we, we thought, okay, like that was cool. Let's practice more than once <laughs> and actually try to nail it. So that was honestly the, the biggest difference is that we just understand. And okay. Even more than that one time practice, I think, instrumentally like semaphore being the core you know backing band basically Mm -hmm. we only probably had like two or three full band practices for that whole thing you know the the uh, groups of us met up like a bunch but right it's very different than this time around there were moments where we had to look we had to look over each note and say uh you know the, the shred part in sunshine the werewolf are we playing the same thing is it supposed to be different do we have to now reference the album again? The second time around, we just really just refined things a bit more. But I think that we had learned how to play the album at that point. So we weren't as concerned with that aspect of it. It was just how do we get this from 90% to at least 95% and plus. Gotcha. Yeah. So now that you've got that under your belt, do you feel like there's some of that that's going to bleed into the like the band going forward? Like I feel like that's yeah. an achievement yeah. that kind of will bring you guys together musically a bit totally i mean i think that it has made us closer as musicians if anything Mm -hmm. we before learning that album we had to clearly trust each other a lot and we had to know okay if we get off who do we turn to how do we just live that thing out musically it's it's a little bit harder to say because i think as i you know as i mentioned we have like detach the islands and Juan bond which are the sister projects of semaphore those bands already have that kind of dillinger sound and so i think very actively we've kind of decided that semaphore should not overtly engage in that you know sure. we're, we're never gonna semaphore will never have a math core song having said that we are writing new music right now and there's a lot of mathy shit on it <laughs> 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 yeah i'm just trying to you know, yeah, now when I write a song, it's like, okay, how do we fuse those things together? Math, core, not not all the time, but if if it if there happens to be a song that ends up sounding mathy, but it's still a shoegaze song, I'm not going to, like, save it for the other band. I'm, it's, you know, I'm going to, I want Semaphore to play that song. You right, know? yeah. Honestly, like, a band that does that really well to me is Car Bomb. Oh, yeah. And... There's some car bomb influences on the new stuff. For totally. Sure. Yeah. That's also that's appropriate because that's how I met you guys was like when you were yeah. the, that whole math core index. Right. right, right. With car bomb headlining. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, you also write for math core index? Is that right? Or so, I mean, I helped put together that festival. Basically mm-hmm. I, I like booked most of the bands. I was contacting the venue and the press. I did a lot for that festival, uh-huh. but I don't actually do much with them outside that yeah gotcha yeah yeah yeah. it's kind of like a one-off thing like we all actually met each other during uh dillinger's final shows Mm -hmm. the main guy was in town or the main two guys were in town and we had floated the idea of this math core festival and we thought that new york you know is probably the best place for this to happen it's pretty well connected to east coast most of these hardcore bands are still out here Let's try to do it here. So uh, they're based out of San Francisco. So for us, it was easiest, you know, if basically I was the main person <laughs> here doing all of that stuff. Do you enjoy that side of being in a band? The like booking, booking and, and, you know, logistical elements? Uh, I don't dislike it, honestly. I, I think it's it's nice to be the person of contact with St. Vitus, for example. Like I love that venue and now mm-hmm. I pretty much know the bookers there which is cool for semaphore itself i I think that that's something we're trying to figure out the next steps in i'd love to get a booking agent for us at Mm -hmm. some point soon so someone who will just be able to pitch us to kind of bigger shows as well word yeah i think that's clearly what i myself don't have the skills to do at this point you know just have connections i don't have connections (laughs) so it'd be it'd be cool to link up with someone like that and other than trying to, you know, l- link up with someone and get bigger shows, mm-hmm. and you say you're working on new material, what's, yeah. what's coming up on the horizon for Semaphore? Yeah, so in December, we are just doing a weekender where we're playing in Baltimore on the 14th, Saturday the 14th, Philly on 
15th and then Boston on the 16th Monday. So that's currently the just how we're going to end out the year. Next year we're we're writing new music right now and it's almost going too well because we have like we've only had two practices of writing sessions and we have like 10 songs so we we need to we need to just refine and refine and refine and i think in early march we're gonna just do some pre-production for those songs and try to shop them around see if anyone's interested and in the meantime i'm gonna try to link up with maybe a booking agent and try to get us on some bigger tour for the uh summertime Hell yeah, that sounds really exciting all around. Wish you the best of luck. Thanks for coming through and talking to me today. Yeah, thanks so much, Ian. Yeah. Thank you again for listening. And thank you to Sadu for joining me. You can find Semaphore's music at semaphorestheband.bandcamp.com You can also follow them on facebook.com slash semaphoretheband on Instagram at Semaphore Music, and on Twitter at Semaphore Band. You can find more episodes of Lamniforms Radio on SoundCloud at Lamniforms-Sounds. You can also find me on Twitter at Lamniforms underscore, or on Instagram at Ian K. Corey. Thank you again for listening. Until next time.